0: Good afternoon and welcome to the latest Alpheus T. Mason lecture in Constitutional Law and Political Thought, sponsored by the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. Uh, I'm Keith Wington, the Acting Director of the James Madison Program uh, for this year. Um, as many of you know, Professor Mason was a long-time, very esteemed uh, member of the Department, um, specializing in the study of constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and American political thought. Uh, and we are very happy to uh, be able to sponsor a lecture series in his honor, Uh, which is uh, funded by uh, John P. Hansel of the class of 48, um, a former student of Professor Mason's. Um, Today's contribution to the lecture series will be presented uh, by Daniel Robinson, who is distinguished professor emeritus uh, from Georgetown University, on whose faculty he served for over 30 years. He continues as a member of the philosophy faculty at Oxford University, uh, where he has lectured annually since 1991. He is the author of numerous books and articles in philosophy, the history of ideas, and the brain sciences, including uh, An Intellectual History of Psychology and Wild beast and Idle Humors, the Insanity Defense from Antiquity uh, to the Present. Um, today, however, he will be speaking on citizenship and leadership, and I'm very happy to welcome back uh, Professor Robinson.
1: Thank you, Keith. Uh, some of you may not know this, but uh, we mustered last week in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center uh, to honor Robert George, who received uh, the Bradley Prize, along with George Will and a couple of other notables. We were all there in black tie. The women were in full feather. The Washington networking system was omnipresent. Uh, Robbie not only received the prize, I think I can Say this in public; it's appeared in the newspapers. He also got a quarter of a million dollars, which went with the prize. We we have a dear friend, uh, Kevin Flannery, Oxford man, who who's now dean of philosophy at the Pontifical Gregorian in Rome. And I immediately sent an email to Father Flannery, and I said, "Our dear friend Robbie got this prize; quarter of a million bucks goes with it, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Kevin replies, "No congratulations or anything else." The reply is, "It's the last bottle of wine I buy him." So, um, it's an honor to see you again, your grace, and I'm sure this uh, audience is Uh, My honorarium actually is not nearly that, it's actually log units removed from that. This is the fifth lecture I've given for the James Madison program, and um, it's always an honor to be brought back. James Madison is a hero of mine uh, he's a hero of ours. He gave us the place, as you know. Uh, when Jefferson came back from, from Paris and wanted to be topped up on what had gone on in Philadelphia, he, he read Madison's notes, declaring those notes to be as close as anything he had seen to a miracle, that a person could spend several months in a hot room actively participating every single day, taking on various positions and at the same time could summarize with accuracy and fidelity and fairness the views of more than a score of other people, many of whom he disagreed with, came as close to the miraculous as anything Jefferson had seen. Uh, Madison, as you know, spent a fifth year here uh, studying chiefly Scottish common sense philosophy with with Witherspoon and uh, thereby got a very good dose of uh, the best philosophy you're going to read written in the English language, namely Thomas Reed. And so uh, Madison and I have uh, some things in common, and a great admiration for Reed being part of it. Well, now to the text. As our constitutional jurisprudence received its refinements and fullest expression within the Enlightenment, perhaps a useful starting point for my remarks today would be Montesquieu's Persian Letters, which displays two defining features of Enlightenment thought, easily misunderstood as being incompatible. There is first the appreciation of the wide diversity of cultural values adopted by human communities, a diversity so great as to render some societies nearly unintelligible to others. But then there is the equally developed recognition of the point at which diversity becomes so inimical to the enduring interests of human communities as to threaten their very survival. In letter 11, Montesquieu has Uzbek relating the tale of the Troglodytes by way of replying to Mirza's question regarding the right sort of life to live. What is the right life to live? Well, Mirza wonders whether virtue or sensual pleasure should be the goal of life, and Uzbek answers by rehearsing the fate of the troglodytes, savage, quote, more like animals than men, so wicked and ferocious that there were no principles of equity or justice among them, close quote. They murder their leaders, reject all authority, and commit themselves, each one singly, to pursue one's own interests, indifferent to the needs and desires of anyone else, Each troglodyte grows just so much food as he needs, provides for his own defense, and practices the various arts of self-gratification. Montesquieu's having fun here, of course. It is not long, however, before crop failures in one area take place, then in another, as well as the breakout of an epidemic, the unevenly distributed misfortune leading to the death of many. Finally, with the outbreak of yet another devastating disease, the troglodytes search out a doctor who comes from a nearby land, and they implore him to provide remedies, which he does, only to discover that his patients, the troglodytes, have absolutely no intention of paying him. Well, the epidemic returns, but this time the doctor refuses all treatment, informing the troglodytes of their injustice and of that poison in their souls, he says, quote, deadlier than that for which you want a cure. He finds them unworthy of his care, for they have no humanity. And as he says, quote, the rules of equity are unknown to you. It seems to me that I should be offending against the gods who are punishing you if I were to oppose their rightful anger. Well, it is useful to remind ourselves of one of the pervasive influences arising from the Darwinian revolution. And that is a skepticism toward or the outright rejection of notions of enduring and immutable properties within the biosocial sphere even the progressive philosophers of the enlightenment and montesquieu is exemplary here though granting the protean nature of human nature assumed all along that favoring conditions would permit the realization of authentic lives the distinctly human life available to all liberated from superstition ignorance, and tyranny, the Enlightenment project was not deterred, but was challenged by the troglodyte, for the project was grounded in an essentialist anthropology. It was not in the ambit of that grand project to reach the possibility that human nature, in contrast with human personality, was unstable, episodic, subject to alteration at the most fundamental levels. Rather, one's personal identity was a matter of experience and contextual determinants, but one's essential identity was the abiding ground. Now, even John Locke, who developed a very strong case against essentialism in his essay concerning the human understanding, finds himself having to revive and feature essentialism when he turns to the real world of political life, that is, when he puts away the tools of the metaphysician and actually has to deal with life as lived, we find essentialism coming back, it must. I've noted in a previous lecture here that the Locke who took his lead from Newton in composing the essay on the human understanding would turn toward an older Stoic tradition to find foundations for his treatises on civil government. What we learn from Locke the political scientist rather than Locke the metaphysician is that, quote, The law of nature stands as an eternal rule to all men, legislators as well as others. The rules that they make for other men's actions be conformable to the law of nature, i.e., to the will of God, of which that is a declaration. And the fundamental law of nature being the preservation of mankind, no humane sanction can be good or valid against it. Locke was a natural law theorist. Uh, This is not saying too much. There wasn't an alternative philosophy of law available to him, do you see? Lloyd Weinreb never seems to get this point. Locke wasn't serious about natural law. He was sort of kidding. Had he written a treatise, he might not have taken that position. Well, largely as a result of evolutionary principles, this perspective has now changed. It's been replaced or seriously challenged by a perspective that emphasizes instability, probability, organicity. One cannot identify, let alone legislate, a set of core precepts applicable to humanity wherever it is found. Rather, pluralism is not merely a social fact, but an evolutionary inevitability as human communities come to terms with the environmental pressures facing them uniquely. The tension is less between pleasure and virtue, than between a realistic conception of virtue as nothing more than what a given culture under its own defining pressures values in the makeup of its members. The troglodyte view, of course. Now, a most worrisome concomitant of this perspective is the aloofness of the human sciences to the civic dimensions of life. Put more starkly, I would say that of the many missing chapters in that thick but somehow thin book devoted to human development, the most glaring one would be one that would have as its title civic development. Do you see, if you take out psychology books, developmental psychology books, you can find the average age at which children walk and talk and nothing on, on civic development. There are veritable handbooks, multi-volume collections in which one will find exacting accounts of children's competences in various areas when they recognize faces and voices and form chains of memory. But one, I say, searches in vain for illumination on what should be a truly burning question, namely the time at which and the conditions under which a young person recognizes not only family membership but civic membership an identity not exhausted by such terms as son, daughter, brother, sister, but one that includes even centrally citizen. Now, to say that one searches in vain is not to say that there are not treatises and studies presented under the heading civic development. You can Google this. I found out a year ago what it meant to Google something. I had a student say he Googled me and I... You... you, you You're not sure whether you would feel it or, what do you mean you Googled me? Oh, he said, I Googled you. Nothing became clearer by the repetition. In fact, it made it worse. I I felt I had been Googled twice then, you (laughs) say? The United States Department of Education, need I have told you that this would be the sponsoring agency, The United States Department of Education includes among its funded programs what is called the National Household Education Survey, which actually samples children from grades 9 through 12 on a set of measures judged to be central to civic development. I want you to consider the five key factors judged to be salient in this respect. First, levels of political knowledge as revealed by questions regarding the identity of office holders. Two, attention to politics scored according to the frequency of reading newspaper and magazine articles on political subjects such as those appearing in Time and Newsweek. D- do you know what happens to the neural glial ratio when you read Newsweek? <laughs> Three, Political participatory skills, as in community service, which, as you know, any number of felons also are supposed to engage (laughs) in. Or degrees of political efficacy in, for example, completing community service projects. So you get some points for, for having an interest in it, and then you get additional points if you actually do what you said you'd do. And then five, really the major one in the study, tolerance of diversity, this measure recording the youngsters openness to perspectives and customs significantly different from one's own. Now, the authors of the research take these five factors collectively to be, quote, measures of civic development. Their annual report of 1998, we learn, is to disclose the factors that ground, quote, a desire and an ability to participate politically, close quote. But it should be unnecessary to contrast both the approach and the content of such efforts with all that enters into an authentic civic personality. What the five factors seem to be tapping is little more than nascent ambition at the level of politics where politics itself rises no higher than the breathless sprint toward election to office. At the risk of being misunderstood, I pause to consider this fifth factor, tolerance and diversity, and to ponder just how it helps to forge a sense of civic identity. It is surely a long way from the ancient maxim that councils, when in Rome, do as Romans do, And it is, of course, utterly hostile to Aristotle's conclusion that, uh, I might be brought up on charges on this campus with this one, Aristotle's conclusion that it is fitting that Hellenes shall rule barbarians, close quote. No patron of tolerance and diversity, he. But by the way, his contemporary Isocrates in his Panegyrics actually raises the question, of what it means to be a Hellene, just in case you think uh, Aristotle's reference here is an ethnic one. And um, um, Socrates' reply is, uh, those who share our conception of culture, those who share our conception of paideia, are Hellenes, he says it's not in the blood, it's in the culture. Now, I, I note all this to underscore the sharp distinctions between classical and contemporary conceptions of of the civic, and therefore of education for citizenship. The ancient worlds of Greece and Rome were dramatically different from today's Western democracies, but different, too, in placing far greater stress on the civic dimensions of life than do our own Western democracies. This was especially so in their Republican stages of political life, and it is this model of civic life that the leaders of the Enlightenment found to be especially instructive. Among the most influential in this regard was again Montesquieu. And this time I turn to his Spirit of the Law, where in the second chapter he considers the forms of education most needed for life within civic society. But education here should be understood in the broadest terms, not merely what takes place in the schoolroom or even in the parlor but more generally, what imposes itself on the thoughts and actions of the young in their most malleable stages of development, education in the ancient Greek sense of Paideia. Well, Montesquieu examines the relationship between education thus understood and those principles of governance under which one must then live all the days of one's life. For Montesquieu, all of the varieties of government settle finally into one of three broad categories, They are either tyrannies or monarchies or republics. And each of these calls for subjects or citizens who have acquired the right sort of disposition for that particular form of government. Those who would be groomed for life within a monarchy, he says, must be educated in honor. Those who would live under despots and tyrants should be educated in fear. And what about those who would be citizens of republics? They must be educated in virtue. It is his discussion of education for life within a republic that Montesquieu most influenced the American founders and supported what Barry Shane has aptly dubbed conservative communitarianism. Within a republican form of government, Montesquieu says, quote, the whole power of education is required, close quote, and this because it is education in virtue, which entails what? Self-renunciation. That's a Odd way of put self-renunciation. Look, H.L. Uh, Mencken once defined Puritanism as the haunting feeling that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> now, uh, this self-renunciation is, 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 is the civic form of it. It's, it's not the chain sort of thing. You understand. Montesquieu says this, quote, this virtue may be defined as the love of the laws and of our country, As such, love requires a constant preference of public to private interest. It is the source of all private virtues, for they are nothing more than the preference itself. This is a more serious reflection on the troglodyte in the Persian letters, do you see? The whole power of education must be devoted to cultivating this preference, this preference for what is good at large, a principled aversion to what is mean and opposed to the general welfare, It's worth recalling at this point that Aristotle identified lawgivers as those who make citizens good by training them in the habits of right action, going so far as to declare that this is the aim of all legislation. Tomen bulima pantos nomethetu tut estin. It's the whole point of legislating, do you see? The whole will, bulima, as in bulimia, do you see? The, the very will of the law is this that it should bring this about now as the american founders agreed life within a republic calls for education in virtue there is in this truism first the notion of a republic and then the notion that within it one might say its very point is a form of life that is and aspires to be virtuous Accordingly, it's not just any type of association that will yield a republic. It would be an abuse of language to refer to a republic of mafians or the pirates republic. And do we not sense a species of low sarcasm in those despots whose tyrannies unfold within what they cynically call people's republics. You'll have to get your cigars elsewhere, I'm sorry. Um The defining character of. You will have to get your cigars elsewhere. Um, The defining character of associations within a bona fide republic is that they are principled, which is what makes them voluntary in the first place. Republics are not the accidental consequence of unexamined traditions, but the most refined and fully intended expression of our essentially political nature. They are brought into being by deliberation. And as such, they are the precious gift of the rational side of human nature. And as they are brought into being by deliberation, they are brought into being for a purpose, which is at once a collective purpose, and also one that is nonetheless individuated at the level of the person. Understand the broad difference between a respect for individuality and something called individualism, which is rather different, you see. Well, were it otherwise, the form of government would be despotic or autocratic or monarchial in the sense of an absolute monarchy. Now, to describe the form of association within republics as principled is to refer not only to the association between the people and the state, but to the associations established among people themselves. I should like to consider this first within the context of an easily misunderstood claim advanced by Aristotle in his politics, where he states that the polis precedes both the family or household, the oikia, and the individual. the, The polis precedes the family and the individual person. You assume he's had too much uso or the students recorded it wrong. He's got the whole damn thing backwards. This is the same politics in which he's going to have it meet, that Helene shall rule barbarians. This is the one, by the way, where he talks about the difference between men and women. Women have better memories. They don't have quite the power to control their, uh, their emotions rationally. He has this descriptive psychology. Is he serious about this? What do you think the last item on the list is regarding the characteristics of men versus women? And on the whole, he says, they eat less. <laughs> so this is clearly a, 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 descriptive, a descriptive psychology. During the question and answer period, Someone should ask me how he got this cockamamie notion that the way you do get gender differences, is is, to have a difference at all is is to have some sort of quantitative difference and that the way you get women is by an incomplete gestational development owing to the temperature of the womb. This is what determines whether you're going, I want you to ask me about how he came to this wacko notion and if you ask me, I will start talking about turtles but that's later. At that point, it will become an Oxford lecture. The Aristotle turtles, women, and so forth. The students leaving the room saying, he lost it. Um, (laughs) um, So so this odd claim in the politics. It's a claim that seems counterintuitive, not to say contrary to fact, until one reflects on the essential nature of families and persons. Consider that... Family may refer to nothing more or less than entities sharing some number of genes in common, drawn from an identifiable breeding pool. Now, understood this way, it would not be possible to distinguish between human clans and beehives. It it would not be possible for an adopted child to have membership in any family except the one he lost in infancy. And moreover, from the mere fact of genetic relatedness, nothing of moral consequence would follow. It may one day be possible to clone a person and to have the clone develop on another planet. Surely the merely contingent fact of genetic identity would not in and of itself establish either moral or political ties between the source and the clone. So family in that basic biogenetic sense doesn't do the kind of work the concept is supposed to do. Family understood, however, as a pattern of duties and obligations attaching to parents, to children, to brothers and sisters, to the very monumentum supplied by the deeds of one's ancestors, Family, in this robust sense, now presupposes an irreducibly political form of social life, a form of society having the rational and moral resources needed to establish and promulgate just such patterns of duties and obligations, the resources needed to transform the biological fact of parentage into the essentially civic office of parent, as Cicero regarded it, do you see? I died in the fourth century BC, which is why I, my references are always to this period, but uh, it was a good time, too. And what then of the individual person? Aristotle surely was not making the preposterous claim that there were no human beings until there was a political community, just as he was not suggesting that genetically related human beings begin to live together only after the creation of a polis. Rather, he was recording once more the ambiguous and marginal standing of that most pathetic creature in Homer, and Aristotle cites Homer in just this connection. Who is the most pathetic creature in all of Homer? The lawless, stateless, hearthless man, lawless, outside the police, do you see? Once one is no longer a neighbor, a citizen, a son or daughter, a wife or husband, father or mother, soldier or statesman, once there is simply no civic or familial identity whatever, what is left over except some unrealized potentiality for a personhood yet to be claimed, do you see? It is then within the polis that one obtains those offices, so to speak, that are constitutive of distinct persons, distinct personalities. It is precisely because of this that one's character, no matter how promising it might be at the outset, must become diminished and degraded and woefully and dangerously incomplete within corrupt regimes if the aim of all legislation is to make persons good by training them in the habits of right action, then the aim of the polis itself is educational. Its aim and purpose must be that civic education, that education in virtue by which nothing less than one's full humanity is realized. Well, if all this refers to the principled basis upon which each citizen stands in relation to the polis, then on what basis do citizens stand in relation to each other? The question resolves itself finally into an inquiry into the nature of friendship. Citizens within a republic are claimed by Montesquieu to love the government, for it is theirs. And on Aristotle's account, they are faithful to a government that is itself faithful to the very purposes of government. For through it, they are able to realize most fully their very humanity, thus rendering the life of a rational being ever more rational, ever more flourishing, ever more virtuous. So there's finally an affectionate bond, a bond of friendship, which is the most voluntary of voluntary associations and therefore the form of association for which one can be held fully accountable. You did not pick your parents, but you do pick your friends, do you say? Thus have Montesquieu and Aristotle, two millennia apart, arrived at the same place. Note, however, that neither would endorse a blind love, neither would accept the formation of an an affectionate bond with regimes that are inimical to the very ends and purposes of political modes of life. Now, to this point, I've referred to friendship and friendly feelings, but I've said very little on the nature of friendship itself. And I'm not going to uh, read this part of it because it would take a little too long, but you you do know that it's in books seven and eight of of Aristotle's ethical treatises that, that, that he presents this this extraordinary and, and perfect because it's dry, the way Aristotle is dry. This extraordinary treatise on friendship, you see. It's so methodical, it's so scientific, you see. Friendships are grounded in one of three considerations A, be friends, B, be friends, A, because they give each other pleasure. These are friendships grounded in pleasure, and he's talking about sensual sorts of pleasure. Edone, hedonism, edone. Nothing wrong with that. These pleasures tend to be ephemeral. They're transitory. The friendship lasts as long as the pleasure lasts, do you see? There are friendships grounded in, the Greek doesn't translate well here, chryzimus, Best translation. Utility. A B in Washington, we know about these friendships very well indeed. A B friends B B friends A because they are useful to each other, and these relationships last as long as each is comparably useful to the other. Just in case only one of them continues to be useful, Bob's your uncle, and that's that. And then Aristotle says that there, there is permanent friendship perfected friendship, telea philia, from telos, the end for which friendship itself exists. And this is where one wants for the other what is best for the other, for the sake of the other. And as this condition obtains, only among those who are virtuous, and he says as virtue is a permanent characteristic of the developed personality, these are permanent associations. So he says all of that. He says, they wish each alike the others good in respect of their goodness, and they are good in themselves. But it is those who wish the good for their friends, for their friends' sake, who are friends in the fullest sense. Since they love each other for themselves and not accidentally, and hence these friendships last as long as they continue to be good, and virtue is a permanent quality. Now, Montesquieu's identification of Republican virtue with the strong preference of public to private interest matches up very well with this and distinguishes such motives from those of self-regard, sensual pleasure, utility, etc. If a republic is an association of friends, its health and endurance are threatened by civic attachments that are transitory and selfish. Now, although Aristotle, no less than we, appreciates that mature friendship cannot obtain between adults and infants, or adults and young children, it is clear that the spirit of friendship is what animates the actions of the good parent. It is wanting for the young what is good for them and for their own sake. This, of course, is different from wanting for them what they, in their innocence and ignorance, might want for themselves. It's also different from wanting for them what merely adds to our own self-regarding pleasures. The true friend offers what the other needs to be deserving of true friendship. Now, if all this seems ancient and uh, Aristotelian, uh, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing, by the way if it all seems too Aristotelian, we should remind ourselves that this very rationale was incorporated into the major documents on which the American Republic was based. Reference to virtue, to lives of virtue, even to the delineated list of virtues can be found in nearly all of the foundational documents. And as it is the Constitution, that is the culmination of this very development, perhaps we should also remind ourselves of what Gladstone's estimation was of the U.S. Constitution. What did Gladstone say about the Constitution of the United States? Get ready for this. Quote, as the British Constitution is the most subtle organism which has proceeded from the womb and long gestation of progressive history, so the American Constitution is, so far as I can see, the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and purpose of man, close quote. Gladstone, authoritative on these subjects. It's like having him pick a club for you. He'd get that right. And he, and he knew how to judge a constitution. D- didn't always know how to honor one, however. Well, that's it. A... Now, what of the virtues that would bind us in friendship and permit our poles to be communities of friends? Both Virginia and Massachusetts had adopted Bills of Rights before there was a Constitution. In Virginia, a Declaration of Rights was adopted May 15, 1776, less than two months before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, granting in Section 1, quote, that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, yes, 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 granting all that, the Virginia Declaration goes on to say, No free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. Close quote. Similarly, the Massachusetts Bill of Rights, this is the old Massachusetts. <laughs> It's an. Uh, do, 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 any of you from that place? <laughs> What's happening? This fellow Summers is now. He, uh, I mean, Aristotle died in the fourth century. Summers is. He, he better be careful about this stuff. This is this Harvard president, who thinks one way. You might want to account for the relative underrepresentation of women in plasma physics, or something. <laughs> if anybody really should want that. Uh, he's he's in he's he's in trouble. He is in trouble. <laughs> I love it. This is the state, you know. This is Massachusetts. But This is the old Massachusetts. Uh, it had a Bill of Rights in 1780, which affirms the natural equality of all, each possessing, quote, certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights. Th- this all came out of uh, out of John Adams, by the way. But then it goes on the happiness of the people and the good order and preservation of civil government essentially depend on piety, religion, and morality. Indeed, the Massachusetts bill goes even further, insisting that, quote, these cannot be generally diffused through a community, but by the institution of public worship of God and of public instructions in piety, religion, and morality. <laughs> you see, the wall of separation is fairly porous at this, at this point. Um, uh, <laughs> Jefferson writes this zany letter to a crowd in Connecticut, and we're all. Would we be as influenced by a lot of other letters that Jefferson wrote, I wonder? Have you read some of them? Um, it's instructive to consider a political document. By, by the way, the Massachusetts one says, and it's particularly important that those who would stand for office be held to the highest standards in these regards. Virtue, morality, piety, and so forth. This is in the bill itself. It is instructive to consider a political document that rejects out of hand one of today's fashionable notions, namely that one is not to confuse the personal virtues or vices of political figures with their ability to do the public's business. You see? Well, all right, so he does that stuff. But, uh, you know, with the bus is running on time. It's, uh, it's instructive because it awakens one to a very different conception of just what is the public's business, which, as it happens, is not primarily business. It isn't even the economy ellipsis. <laughs> uh, economics is of instrumental value. It's not an end in itself. It's not ultimate. Of more fundamental and intrinsic value are those possibilities secured by and within the just and decent state, wherein one may benefit from what the Massachusetts Constitution called, quote, the advantages of liberty. We see in that document that the values essential to the development of a person are the same as those that Massachusetts would incorporate into law and to which Massachusetts then would bind its its legislators and judges. And I should tell you that nothing in the subsequent deliberations leading to the U.S. Constitution would be at variance in any way at all with these core conceptions of government, citizenship, and the entire aims of a political community. Well, back now to the question of civic development, and is Billy reading Newsweek. Um, There's no relationship, not, not even that between master and slave, in which the powers of one party can exploit the vulnerabilities of another as completely as that between parent and child. In a just and caring regime, a regime in which the ultimate purposes of law are not unlike those that bind virtuous friends, such vulnerabilities are the wellsprings of legally conferred rights. Children in this sense have the right to be cared for and guided, protected and nurtured, molded into citizens themselves and themselves committed to justice and fairness. They are not possessions to be used or abused or destroyed according to the whims of owners. They are to be, if they are to be created only to be killed, or if they are to be raised in contexts that place them at moral risk, it cannot be by the rights of those who perform these actions on them. The state has duties proportioned to its own powers, and it must not abuse those powers. But the laws of the state can surely incline where they would not ruthlessly determine. Robbie George's Making Men Moral is, is a is an exquisite analysis of the the power of inclination in a regime of justice that is not determinative of human activity, but inclines it, relentlessly inclines it in the right way. As these laws pertain to the family, they must incline parents toward virtue, toward the proper use of parental power, toward a daily recognition that the fate of nations depends on what elders do to and for the young. None of this is to be held hostage to some specious privacy right advanced by those who reject any claims that civic duty would attach to liberties. By the way, these privacy rights, if you want to know where you got them, where to find them, they're not in the Constitution. If you want to know where to look for them, they're in the penumbra. During the question and answer period, I will help you find the penumbra. Where are the light switches? In the I'll help you with the penumbra. Now, uh, the ultimate privacy is enjoyed only by what is the, who, who, who has that ultimate privacy? The lawless, stateless, heartless figure in Homer, who would be described by Aristotle as one rising either above humanity or sinking below it. Well, it should be clear from what I've been saying that I don't regard as sacred the ruling shibboleths of contemporary life, whether lived in the East or the West. Human history, when looked at with open eyes and when sifted with care and competence, is rich in data and the inferences permitted by these data. We have a robust enough sample of failed republics, grim tyrannies, self-gratifying epics of moral distraction, and self-confident epics of religious fundamentalism to reach conclusions as to regimes worth saving, laws worthy of our fidelity, practices generative of commendable forms of life. We don't need another study. The evidence of history is surer, clearer far more realistic than anything yielded by the serious little inquiries of the social scientist. For all the attention the U.S. Department of Education has paid to those five factors allegedly grounding civic development, the student of history must stand as a scold, reminding the investigators and those likely to be in their thrall that Charlemagne couldn't write, that Leonidas almost certainly would not have spent his youth reading Newsweek, and that the and that the Roman Republic at its height of power and justice did not celebrate diversity. One is not to tolerate vice and villainy, nor is one to be blind to the fundamental difference between manners and morals. It is one of Hegel's sounder maxims, in fact, one of the few that you actually could read in his language or your own, that what the law permits, it encourages it's one of the clearer lessons of history that the political character of a nation shapes the sensibilities of its young, setting for them those standards of justice and decency that might compensate for life within an uncaring or corrupting family, within thoughtless and even malign local enclaves. The polis, whatever its character, is a teacher. Polis de Dadasca was an expression old, old when Socrates was young polis, Andra Dadaska, man's taught by the polis. I must tell you this. I gave a talk a month or so ago, two months ago before the Institute of the Humanities at Calgary. It's an institute uh, uh, supported by the Canadian government. You know Canada's even more. Capacity. And it's very far away. It's over uh, and it's an incredible distance. So the director of the institute said that he, he wanted a talk that would cut across the humanistic subjects because the, uh, the faculty from law, history, philosophy, etc., could I, could I do so? So I said I, I would give it a try. And I sent him, as the title of my talk, Polis Andra Vidaska, man is taught by the polis. Well. He wrote back. And he was delighted. This is exactly what he wanted. It was a little bit embarrassing. You know it's coming, don't you? It's a little bit I didn't know what was coming. Uh, a little bit embarrassing to bring this
2: up, but would it be possible to get man out of the title? <laughs> 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 well,
1: the subtext being perhaps even off the face of the earth. Well, <laughs> um, so, so, um, my, my wife was over. So what are you going to do about this? So, well, well, what can I just, um, it is a te- an especially ominous feature of our own bad politics is the need to consider amendments to the U.S. Constitution in order to safeguard, of all things, marriage, which is to say the covenant entered into by a husband and a wife. You see, this is what the word means. Now, if it is the U.S. Constitution that is needed here, we are advised to take counsel with one of the most influential architects of that great work, James Wilson. At pains to consider such matters in his widely read lectures on law, published in 1790-91, Wilson examines the foundations of human rights beyond what nature might have conferred In what Locke would call the original position, what James Wilson refers to as the unrelated state of our being, unrelated to anything else. And he reaches this conclusion. Wilson wasn't just one of the chaps in the room in Philadelphia. Wilson is a central figure, one might say a day-saving figure in that entire operation, and the only one with significant legal preparation. Native Scott, Edinburgh degree, the whole whole team. Here's Wilson. I come now to specify and to consider those peculiar relations by virtue of which a man is entitled to the enjoyment of peculiar rights and obliged to the performance of peculiar duties. I begin with marriage, which forms the near relation between husband and wife. Whether we consult the soundest deductions of reason or resort to the best information conveyed to us by history, or listen to the undoubted intelligence communicated in holy writ, we shall find that to the institution of marriage the true origin of society must be traced. By that institution, the felicity of paradise was consummated, and since the unhappy expulsion from thence to that institution more than to any other have mankind been indebted for the share of peace and harmony which has been distributed among them. Prima, so in ipso conjugio est, says Cicero in his book of offices, a work which does honor to the human understanding and the human heart. Close quote. I should have read this with a broad scotch. I mean, Wilson must have really been, you you read his opinion, opinion in Chisholm versus Georgia where he gets to, Georgia has claimed sovereignty, and Wilson, who can't find sovereignty in the Constitution and isn't going to go into a penumbra to find one. It is a wonderful... Now, it's in the very next section of this same lecture. This is Lecture 12, by the way. Wilson, reflecting on the duties owed to children, notes that U.S. law, consistent with long-established precepts in common law, protects human life, quote from its beginning to its end, close quote. And he takes the beginning, he says, as is generally regarded, the first signs of movement in the womb. 1791, James Wilson, whose constitutional jurisprudence probably was the most refined of those who met in Philadelphia. Would you agree with that? I think so. Well, even as our departments of education published surveys of children's reading habits, and their delight in diversity, there is an older record that might be consulted on the nature of civic development and its dependence on the polis. I think in this connection of Rutilius, Namatianus, fifth century AD, returning to Rome after it has been sacked by Alaric. Seeing Rome again, even amidst the rubble and confusion Rutilius says of his birthplace, Thou hast made of alien realms one fatherland. The lawless found their gain beneath thy sway. Sharing thy laws with them, thou hast subdued. Thou hast made a city of the once wide world. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. A provocative and wide ranging talk. And as you'll recall, there were uh, questions he's already prepared for you to answer. Um, we do have uh, some time uh, for questions. It's uh, a tradition with the math and Program to uh, reserve the first question or two for students uh, if there are uh, such questions uh, to be had. Um, otherwise, uh, we'll, we're happy to throw it open uh, more widely.
1: I'm not quite sure whether whether, um, you're with Homer and Aristotle on such a person actually being stateless. Do you mean one who finds himself within a political context whose values are so at variance with his fundamental moral grounding that he cannot associate himself meaningfully as a member of that state? Is that what you mean? Or do you mean some alien being who just happens to be dropped, Right. Well, let, let's uh, classify, uh, let's take a look at, at the uh, unarguable categories in which an entity finds itself in that state. Infants, the profoundly retarded, the terminal Alzheimer's pe- person lacking in rational power and comprehension and cognition. We're not slaves yet now. Um, That person is a ward in the fullest sense, and that entity's status is determined by the laws of the polis itself. This is a non-participating entity uh, whose whose, whose standing is totally in the thrall of others. Now let's move ahead to uh, uh, not infants. Uh, I have a 13-year-old granddaughter who does not have the full range of legal rights, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, tends to raise an eyebrow uh, when told that certain things uh, probably shouldn't be done even though they're lawful, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so now you're dealing with somebody who, um, uh, as with all teenagers, might find good grounds for resisting. Well, this, of course, is part of the long debate between, between uh, inchoate citizenship and full citizenship. This is is the argument we have to have seven days a week with each other. This is what it means for friends in principle wanting for the other what's best for the other, for the other's sake, where there is a fundamental disagreement as to just what is best. Now, this doesn't sacrifice one's standing, one's civic standing. One, One may feel pretty much outside the mainstream and therefore summoned to do something to bring the mainstream much closer to her position, But this fact of of core disagreements, even at the most fundamental level, I say, is not at the expense of civic standing. Now, what about slaves? It's precisely insofar as a rational being is being used as a tool by another that that regime is not worth keeping. And the fundamental obligation an entity has there is to oppose it, to bring it down, to correct it, to do whatever is necessary so that at least one version of the categorical imperative is honored. So act that the maxim of your action would, if you could make it so, be instituted as a universal law. Nobody would accept slavery under that condition, do you see? So, now I think there's a subtext in that question. Uh, you must have yet another character in mind, perhaps uh, someone you know. Do, do you? <laughs> Oh all right. Okay. okay. But, but the, um, so necessarily- which which one did you have in mind? Then? What would an instance? Of, I'm, I'm just limited. I, I can't quite. Like well, no, he said someone who's was born and raised here, but but is.
2: Yeah. In
1: oh, I see. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. All these politics departments. Um, well, um, no, it, it, it's a good, it's a good question, but it's a, it, it's a juridical so, sort of question. Here, here, here's the, here's the right answer. Uh, uh, the, the right answer is that our obligations to other human beings go beyond anything statutorily established, because, because our fidelity to statute is itself grounded in something more fundamental than statute. Read Hadley arcus on beyond the Constitution so so, so, the first thing we have to get square on is this: whatever your political standing happens to be, your moral standing is established in virtue of the kind of thing that you are, you are a natural kind of thing which we call a rational being, um, and in virtue of the fact that you are a rational being, you are owed reasons when we 're going to do things that might affect you. you are capable of trafficking. In reasons, in explanations, it's always right for you to say, "By what right are you doing this to me?" Now that's got to cut across all statutory sorts of. I, I'm, I'm, look, I, I don't want to be regaled with. Should the people of California be paying for the education of Mexican? I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, by the way, go to Cambridge. There's a whole faculty that will answer that question for you in one voice. Yes. <laughs> See? What, whatever it is, is There's a government pay? Yes. So it's amazing. It's an amazing play, uh, and it and it's you, you know you, you know we say at Oxford this higher education thing. When it comes to higher education, the first eight hundred years are the toughest. So, so so you know so Harvard still has three four four hundred years to work this out. Summers will get it right in time, I'm sure. He'll just stop talking. I, I, I didn't do justice to the question, but but the the answer is that. Uh, the fundamental terms of association are moral. The derived terms are political. It's always a very difficult task getting these things to match up right. But any time you avail yourself as a, of a statute as a condition of mistreating a human being, you're committing an offense against the idea of law itself. I, I finished my answer. Just. <laughs> Have you absolutely no interest either in turtles or gender differences? None whatever. I mean, I came here prepared to talk about this. Hmm. Ma'am, do ask the question. Yes. You're not going to ask about turtles? All right. I'm sorry. What, what 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 was the question? Well, um, look, um, if you read Kant, uh, with all respect, you've got a chap whose suit is just a little too tight. There's no question about it. Profoundly important figure in the history of moral thought. This is the same Kant who, addressing the question, what should the state's Final Act B, at the moment before its total dissolution, the last official act of the state, what should it be? It should be the execution of all prisoners who are scheduled to be executed. Now, so you say to yourself, Manny, look. You know. Um, But what he does draw attention to is... The conceptual, I don't want to say logical, but I do want to say the conceptual relationship between moral autonomy and responsibility. So, the answer to the question where does freedom stand in this analysis is this it makes you vulnerable before justice. It is in virtue of the fact that you do act freely that you are accountable. Now, where the the force and constraint of law is such as to make the exercise of that freedom not something that is in the best interest of others for the sake of others, do you see? You know, Aristotle raises the question, uh, some people think that, that Lon Fuller invented the notion of fidelity to law. The first one who raises the question, why are we faithful to law itself? You see, getting past the law with a whip and a chair, fear and a what? Why is it we want it? He says it has a property. What property? He says it has the property of filicon. It has the property of a friend. And how does he want that to be understood? The just law wants for each of us what's best for us for our sake, the way a good friend would want it. Bad laws. Quite the contrary, bad laws concerned with using us, utility, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. so it 's always a difficult question that the, 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 the regimes of liberty, respectful of the dignity and standing of the person, generally have a hands off policy on all sorts of options that we, we might exercise here 's the good news We live in a place where you can do things pretty much any damn way you want here 's the bad news. We live in a place where you can pretty much do things any damn way you want, do you see? And then all of a sudden you turn around and say, well, wait a minute, we, we didn't think you were going. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, we didn't think nine-year-olds should go into a public library and access smut sites on the Internet. I mean, and then the librarian says, well, uh, we have a strict policy against censorship. And you say, am I in Massachusetts? Um, <laughs> The answer to the question, should children be able to access uh, pornography in a public library? Can, Can you hear me from where I'm standing? The answer to that question is no, you see. The librarian who thinks there's a problem here is in the wrong line of work. Well, I, uh, look, I'm, 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 I'm with H.L. Mencken. I, I, I don't worry about somebody somewhere being happy. I, I tell you, I, what I do worry about is this. I worry about the vulgarization of our sensual powers and therefore the utter loss of aesthetic sensibility. There is a point, you know, where you have so cheapened the very instruments of perception that the damn things don't work at all. I worry about that. I also worry about, about deriving some sort of amusement from modes of, of, of degradation. Um, and so, you know what I've told students for years, you know, ha, 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 there's a, an X-rated film down the street. We buy popcorn and laugh. The people who produce this crap don't care whether you're laughing or not. The patrons who made the Renaissance were families like the Fuggers and the Medicis and so forth. It was their taste, their backing, their money, their influence that gave us the Renaissance. The Medicis today are those of us in this room. Do you see? What I do with this Determines what will be painted, what will be filmed, what will be recorded. So when you patronize these things, you do it as a patron. We still wait a very good book on the history of patronage, which itself is a history of civilization. So for us to expend energy and resources supporting that stuff uh, on on the alleged grounds that how do you distinguish between that and, oh, Give me a break, you know. I, look, I, I, I give lectures on the sophists. I know all about that. Uh, the sophist eats the wise man. No, you've got to get rid of this stuff, and you've got to get rid of the, the uh, impulse to do it. I'll leave the penny there so that it will bring someone good luck. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> the honorarium. Uh, <laughs> Robbie's, uh, Robbie's going to ask about turtles, I think. No, I didn't. Well, uh, well, <laughs> I the
2: informula made something of a of a career on saying that no, the adult doesn't have the right to uh yeah. access uh yeah. this stuff and the law does have this uh interference with the exercise of uh of that uh uh put it in the down to call it once mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But that's uh
1: For yeah. any action affecting the interest of the person, it can't just be this is the way we like this. No no that that, that quite. That that is why I said rational creatures are owed reasons well, when actions are taken against it. Yes. yes. But of
2: course not an obligation yeah. is on the civic authority quite. to act but it's, it's not good enough simply to say, here's my
1: reason. Mm. It's not that quite, any we'll will
2: Well, yes. <laughs> the, the, the very philosophy that many people would, you know, honorable and respectable scholars, certainly among them, are going to have one come to this series before you want, would say...
1: I, I would reject that as a, as a description of constitutional history. As, as honorable as the scholar, the scholars can be honorable and profoundly mistaken. Yeah, <laughs> happens all the time, actually. <laughs> Office. It's an office. Cicero called it an office. yeah. uh, Hmm.
2: principle. I think to the libertarian here, there could be almost
1: nothing that would be more scandalous. Oh, sure. It would would seem as though the the, the, the person is being constricted as
2: a parent into service uh, to the civic community. Right. And I'll just conclude, though. The great guy who we all remember saying, "Man is fundamentally a political animal." Yeah. At one point, says, "But there's a more
1: fundamental thing still, and that is, man is a, an animal fit out for American family." Well, well, Robbie, I, I do know the passage, and I and I know and I know how that passage is is, is often used, and and uh, it, it 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 really should be. Uh, I, I don't want to give a lecture on a lecture, but but one has to be careful with with the Greek here because Aristotle, in this vein, is is writing as a naturalist. And when he says that the conjugal bond is more fundamental than the political bond, he's talking about that basic biological fact of of intercourse, the, the inclination toward procreative behavior. He, he's not talking about a conjugal bond as in husband and wife. He's—he's he's, in fact, it isn't a conjugal bond. I had to write to Kevin Flannery about this because Ke- Kevin knows the Greek, but he—I I think he translated it as a Jesuit might, and I did write back to say, uh, I wrote back to say no, it isn't Saint Aristotle. It's Aristotle. Not a—not a bad Christian for a guy who died in 322 B.C. Uh, Etc so 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 i, I, I don 't think Aristotle here is temporizing on the centrality of of political life as the means by which we, we realize our humanity but i do, I do want to get back to something very important in, in, in your, uh, your your uh, description of my position as uh, anti libertarian which, which, which it is um and and address your question with greater intelligence now that Robbie has spoken on this. There is a fundamental question as to whether liberty is an absolute value or of instrumental value. Uh, This is not something that goes away by going up in a balloon every time we talk about ourselves as free. Liberty as an instrumental value is the freedom to do the sorts of things that first are compatible with responsible liberty itself, not liberty defeating things. The answer to the question, why should I not be on heroin all my life? I am a free person is, well, among other things, if you do that, you won't be. Do you see? You'll be a slave to the substance. But I say, quite apart from having to conduct oneself in a manner that's compatible with with the very concept of freedom. There remains the question of, of whether freedom should be understood as an absol- of, of ha- having absolute value independently of any use to which it is put. Um, I, I, I haven't been able to satisfy myself on that point. I, I, I wrote a, um, a, a, a book in defense of moral realism uh, a couple of years ago, which Princeton published, called Praise and Blame. And, and in that work, I, uh, I do spend a bit of time on Kant and, and, uh, and on Mill and, and points in between. I, I, I haven't been able to decide on this. Robbie, I think, is more or less committed to the view that it's instrumental, that, that the question is for what? What is the point of it? I lean in that direction because I lean in an Aristotelian direction, but, I, but, but, but this, uh, this requires much deeper Thought on my part, surely. Yeah, I don't know. Yes, sir. Uh, Turtles. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's odd someone would ask a question like that. Uh, Well, let me. Here we've got Aristotle. He look. He he died a long time ago. People still get tenure, showing he made a mistake. Um. So he's got this crazy thing in the politics. I always have to say it was a work that wasn't fully completed. We only have about 10% of everything he wrote. Uh, but he does have this crazy man woman thing. It's, it's, it's one of these, it, it's Aristotle as Margaret Mead. You know, he's doing these things. And he's got the list. Now, one of the things he has to account for is that there are men and women. It, obviously, it's a good thing because it's the way you get other people. But how do you produce them? Why are there genders? How is it that genders come about? In his day, there were only two. <laughs> um, so, so, And they're distinguishable. Now, for Aristotle, where there is a distinction, there's a table of categories that allow you to determine the the grounding for the distinction quality, quantity, etc. etc. Well, he's in general, for the most part it's a stock phrase in Aristotle, for the most part, by and large. Osepitopoli is the Greek. Osepitopoli. Um, women are not as large, not as strong, etc. Et and he's got the thing about their memories are better. Those of us married more than 30 years will. Joe, their memories are better. There's no question about it. Um, uh, uh, not as able as men to control their passions. Uh, thank you, Aristotle. Um, a little bit of fan club, male fan club there. But, but then, on the question of how you get the genders, well, but since women are, by and large, weaker, smaller, etc., there seems to be a less complete development, and this he thinks is fairly obvious very, very early on. So it's probably something going on gestationally. And what theory does he have available to him? He puts forth this absolutely zany idea that you get gender differences, probably as a result of differences in the temperature of the womb during gestation. And this is when you close the book and say, I'll love you till the day I die, but boy, somebody should have edited this one. You know? <laughs> Do you know what we're going to have to explain when the students read that? <laughs> We've got to tell them you must take this man seriously. So last Trinity term, um, we don't sleep, by the way. We pretend to sleep. So I'm sitting in our Oxford apartment, and, and um, uh, BBC has has a, a live at five. It's, a, it's an all-night chat, and this, that, and the other thing. And it, it's a good part of BBC radio. It's it's not like BBC television. It's not a division of Al Jazeera. Um, so, so, so a scientist is being interviewed, and I'm, I've got the plugs in, and and. Uh, uh, And he's talking about the disappearance of the dinosaur. And I know why the dinosaur disappeared, and so did the moderator on the program. He says, well, it was the the comet hit and the dust cloud went up, and that was the end of vegetation, whereupon the fellow says, well, that's a very small part of it. He said, well, what's the main part of it? He said, there weren't enough females produced. How's that again? Well, he says, look, uh, for this species, and he says, by the way, the turtle is the same species, so you can do this uh, experimentally. For this species, gender is determined by gestational temperature. And when that cloud went up, the earth cooled. And I slammed my hand on the mattress. My wife jumped up. It was something like 4.30 in the morning. She said, what is it? I said, Aristotle, it's the turtles. <laughs> now, now, wait, wait. He, re- he wrote this stuff after... Um, This is wonderful, but you don't care. Look, um, Plato died. Aristotle should have got the job. Academic politics being what it is. uh, One of Plato's relatives gets it. Spusippus gets it. Bit of a weirdo anyway. Aristotle leaves town in a huff, probably. This is when he leaves. He gets married. He coaches uh, Alexander the Great, uh, tells him, no, your mother's just kidding. Your father wasn't a snake. Uh, But he... The the honeymoon period has him going up along the shores, the coast of the the Mytilene coast, and he's looking at the cuttlefish, and I mean, it must have, I think it was the happiest time of his life. He must have observed, as he moved to different temperature gradations, differences in the genders of turtles. He, He observed everything, so obviously he'd be looking at this. And I think he came to this cockamamie idea, well, didn't he realize we don't gestate the way turtles do? No, he didn't, do Did you see? He didn't know how this stuff happened. I'm 68 years old. I'm not sure how it happens. But, uh, so, so that was the thing about the, about the turtles. It, 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 it's, it's not a crazy bit of, of theorizing in the politics. It's a shame that he put it there. It should have been in the history of the animals or something, You know where he's also observing that, that dolphin dream, and if you wade into the water quietly and you don't disturb them, you can hear their vocalizations. <laughs> Ma'am.
2: You
1: decks, which practically
0: I'm grading a paper from a student of mine on the politics of education and constitutional law. And, and your comments on Aristotle and Montesquieu in particular puts me in mind of her approach to thinking about education and what it's for. Um, and she's very influenced in particular by John Dewey in thinking about, well, do we have any notions of uh, what educational, what the role of education ought to be in democracy, mm-hmm. emphasizing uh, notions of critical thinking skills but not judgment of, uh, of yeah. values more generally, certainly not concerned with socialization and the inculcation of values uh, across time, um, which you which view that kind of notion as being very much at odds with um, not only democracy generally, but but the kind of social pluralism that we would want to live in in a modern society and in fact have to deal with in a modern society. So I wonder if you would want to say a bit more about how you think about uh, carrying over these kinds of notions of Uh, education in the context of uh, a pluralistic society there's a lot of disagreement
1: yes well Well, I I do want to say this on on the notion of um, pluralism Um, there was no more variegated a world of cultures and politics than the world ruled by Rome for more than 500 years cultural pluralism is not a modern outcome it's an ancient one and the range of differences was far greater then than it is now. The ancient Greek people were a maritime people, uh, uh, fully informed on cultural diversity. Remember, philosophy is an invention of Greeks in Asia Minor. It's not uh, an invention of the mainland Greeks. It's these, 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 these. Greeks and Miletus and Lesbos and so forth, taking a look at what's going on in Persia and thinking it's the craziest thing they've ever seen in their life. Um, this is like the Greeks when they, these, the, the Greeks when they first got to, to the Nile Valley. And they see this incredible, one of the ancient Greek debts to Egypt is the idea of architecture as a monumental form of of, of uh, work, but you can imagine what they thought when they just saw this tremendous thing in the sand shape the way it was. It must have reminded the Greek of a honey cake that had that shape at home. The Greeks called them pyramidoi. He must have said in a pyramidos, <laughs> you know, it's a big honey cake. You wonder why I'm telling you this. <laughs> These honey cakes were made for the games, and when the sprinters running the 100-meter dash, the winner would, would get a pyramidos or a little dish of piramidoi. Hence the expression, he takes the cake, which you probably thought was invented, you know, by your uncle. Um, 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 look, Dewey comes out of the wrong pragmatist tradition. Dewey has much uh, influence on what today is called social constructionism, that every culture contains the necessary resources for producing what it needs most, and uh, it isn't anybody's business to go in there and try to get a given culture, which has worked these things out, to do it some other way. Education for citizenship in a pluralistic world is an an education in getting on with others. Now, the reason I mention the ancient Greek and Roman worlds is it was not an ignorance of diversity. It was a fearfulness about diversity. It was the recognition that at the end of the day, some of these differences will tell against the very survival of what is most valued. Now, their metaphysics was an essentialist metaphysics. And this is an arguable proposition whether man is by nature a certain kind of thing, a natural kind. The whole concept of natural kinds is a controversial one in metaphysics, in in ontology. But I do want to say that the the constitutional jurisprudence of the United States is predicated on an essentialist metaphysics. The, The whole assumption of the Enlightenment is that under favoring conditions, we all become eligible for membership in the Athenaeum. I mean, um, or or words, words to that effect that, that, that all these differences set aside there is a core identity in virtue of which we are human beings, and again, under favouring conditions, we will not end up at odds with each other, we will end up in bonds of friendship where we want for the other what 's best for the other for the sake of the other, and this permits a tolerable range of variations and I mean a tolerable range of variations. But not a limitless range. And anyway, what Dewey never got around to telling me is why I should tolerate diversity at all. You see, the moral grounding of the disposition to tolerate must be in place for the argument even to make sense. In virtue of what should I tolerate anything? So if you suspend the moral canon, one of the casualties is the disposition to tolerance. Sorry about that. That's a conceptual truth and no extra charge on that one. (laughs) Thank you, we've reached the end of our time but before we thank
0: our speaker and retire to a reception outside, I wanted to call your attention to a panel that will be in the same room at the same time uh, tomorrow um, featuring uh, the work of my colleague, uh, Professor Ken Kirsch. Uh, We'll be having a panel called Civil Liberties in the State in Twentieth Century America, a discussion of Professor Kirsch's Constructing Civil Liberties, Get Discontinuities in the Development of American Constitutional Law. And to help discuss that book, uh, we'll have with us uh, Professor William Novak of the University of Chicago and Professor Richard Binzel um from Cornell University. So it should be quite a good discussion of American constitutionalism, and American history. In the late 19th and early 20th century. Unlike uh, today. This will be a very serious discussion. That will dis- be a yeah. serious discussion. No. There will be no, no Aristotle involved. You, you, you,
1: you've been forewarned.
0: That's right. There will be, there'll be little discussion of turtles and quite, quite a bit of discussion of the course of power of the state. Um, so I hope some of you will be able to join us uh, for that tomorrow. Um, but today, uh, please help me uh, thank. Uh, thank you.